The question is, why do we need the Bible? Welcome to Truth Trek, where we dive deep into the Bible to uncover the treasures there. I'm Pastor Jason Hubdy, and I will be your guide as we journey together into Scripture, God's Holy Word. In today's episode, we will be taking a look at the necessity of Scripture and trying to answer that question, why do we need the Bible? And in this podcast, I want to give credit right off the bat that uh, I'll be quoting quite a bit from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And many of uh, the quotes I'll be quoting from are from chapter 7 of Systematic Theology, An Introduction to Bible Doctrine. Uh, chapter 7 is entitled The Four Characteristics of Scripture, and uh, specifically the subsection Necessity. Uh, for, which, for what purpose is the Bible necessary? How much can people know about God without the Bible? So, it's important that we take a moment, I think, to say why Scripture is necessary. Um, you'll hear me often saying, you know, that we need to know our Bibles. If we're believers in Christ, we need to be learning all the time from Scripture. Um, I teach and preach Scripture, and yet I need daily to be in Scripture uh, to remind myself of what it says, to continue to learn new things uh, about myself and about God. Um, hopefully those things are helping me to move forward in my faith and sanctification as I grow, hopefully to be more like Christ. So it's, it's important, though, that we take a moment to say, why is it necessary? So we'll be talking about that um, the first thing I want to quote from Grudem's uh, Systematic Theology is that the necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will, but is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. That, there's a lot said in just that one sentence, um, that knowing the gospel has to come through what Bi the Bible teaches. But knowing that God exists, or knowing something about God's character and moral laws, uh, we don't need Scripture necessarily to know that. Scripture tells us that we can uh, see with evidence that there's, an ex there's a creator, there's a, there's a God who uh, is there and manifests himself, in a sense, through his creation. And uh, we'll talk about that probably in another podcast uh, more deeply. The idea of what is called general re revelation. General revelation means that uh, we can know of God and know some things about him uh, just through our existence and observations of the world around us. And that is under the category of general revelation. So general revelation is part of how we know God exists, but then we have special revelation. That is specifically how God reveals his plan of salvation to us, and special revelation is that which came through the scriptures. 
Um, and Hebrews tells us at the very beginning of Hebrews that in the past God spoke to us through prophets, and now he speaks through his son. Um, so there, there was special revelation uh, that was prophetic. Uh, there was special revelation that was uh, explicit teachings, such as the Law of Moses. Uh, and we today are privileged to have the special revelation all cataloged for us in Scripture. So Scripture is necessary for us to uh, know God's plan of salvation. In Romans 10, starting at verse 13, I'll, you'll hear this referred to a lot by myself and by many who uh, teach these topics, but it talks about uh, how people come to uh, know the gospel. So it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So one of the things that we look at in this passage is we see that uh, there's sort of a chain of logic that Paul is using. He's saying, how can they call on him, that's Jesus, in whom they have not believed? Well, that makes sense. If they don't believe in Christ, they won't call on him. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So we move down that chain a little further. We say, well, they can't call on him if they haven't believed in him. They can't believe in him if they've never heard of him. And then he says, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so it goes back all the way to the concept of the church sending someone out to preach the gospel or God himself sending someone out to preach the gospel. Uh, you may remember from Isaiah um, where Isaiah responded to the question, uh, who will go? And, and Isaiah said, here I am, send me. So the gospel is found in the scriptures. The scriptures are the only thing that we can rely on to know the gospel, uh, and that's how people come to faith in Christ. From Grudem again, we see this. But if people can be saved only through faith in Christ, someone might ask how believers under the old covenant could have been saved. The answer must be that those who were saved under the old covenant were also saved through trusting in Christ, even though their faith was a forward-looking faith based on God's word of promise that a Messiah or Redeemer would come. Speaking of Old Testament believers such as Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, the author of Hebrews says, These all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it and greeted it from afar. The same chapter goes on to say that Moses considered abuse suffered for the Christ or the Messiah greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, 
for he looked to the reward. And Jesus can say of Abraham, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. It's from John eight fifty six. This again apparently refers to Abraham's joy in looking forward to the day of the promised Messiah. Thus, even Old Testament believers had saving faith in Christ, to whom they looked forward, not with exact knowledge of the historical details of Christ's life, but with great faith in the absolute reliability of God's words of promise. And then Grudem says a little further down, the Bible is necessary for salvation then in this sense. One must either read the gospel message in the Bible for oneself or hear it from another person. Even those believers who come to salvation, uh, who came to salvation in the old covenant did so by trusting in the words of God that a promised that promised a savior to come, end quote. So Grudem is saying here something that uh, is an important thing for us to take a moment and think about, which is that um, even those believers who came to salvation in the Old Covenant, they, the information they had came in the form of words. God gave words. He gave them either through a prophet or directly to certain people in the Old Testament. Um, and so there was words that told them uh, of a Savior to come. I want to talk for a moment about some things that Peter wrote in First uh, Peter. And we see that as we look at Peter's writings, that he is making an assumption that those he's writing to, which let's remind ourselves is the letters, the epistles we find in the New Testament, are written specifically to the church. That doesn't mean that others won't read them, but others may not understand them. They may not have meaning to the unbeliever. But it's always important to keep in mind that they, they were written to a church. They were written to the people who had put faith in Christ. And we can see that Peter makes the assumption that the way that people were born again, that they were saved, was because they had heard the word of God. They had understood because they had heard. So in 1 Peter 1, at verse 23 through 25, it says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This, these kind of passages get me excited because I love God's word. And this is a great reminder that God's word is what brings salvation. We can remember as well that, uh, that Paul said in Romans that the reason he wasn't ashamed of the gospel is that it's the power of God for salvation. So this is the word of God that has power. So Peter is saying here that it's obvious to uh, that anyone who's in Christ, who's put faith in Christ, it's because 
they were born again through the living and abiding word of God. And, uh, and the word of the Lord remains forever. This word is the good news that was preached to you, Peter says. And then in the next chapter of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 2, uh, he tells the people that uh, like newborn infants, they should long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And what is this pure spiritual milk that he's speaking of? It is God's word. And so we see that the Bible is God's word, and it's associated with as spiritual milk. What is milk for an infant? That's life itself. It's nourishment. It's the, the necessity that is had so that the baby can grow and become healthy. And so as believers, we need to have God's word to grow in the faith, to grow as we move forward through life, to grow closer to Christ. And the next point I want to make here uh, goes back to kind of what we were talking about, about special revelation, that the Bible is necessary for certain knowledge of God's will. We can't know what God's will is uh, outside of Scripture. We can guess at things, but Scripture is the only place we can have certain knowledge of God's will. I go back to Grudem again here. He said, in fact, if there were no written word of God, we could not gain certainty about God's will through any other means, such as conscience, advice from others, an eternal, wit internal witness of the Holy Spirit, changed circumstances, and the use of sanctified reasoning and common sense. These all might give an approximation of God's will in more or less reliable ways, but from these means alone, no certainty about God's will could ever be obtained, at least in a fallen world where sin distorts our perception of right and wrong, brings faulty reasoning into our thinking processes, and causes us to suppress from time to time the testimony of our consciences. Okay, let's talk about that for a moment. This may uh, step on some toes. This may uh, cause someone a little discomfort for a moment. And the reason is, is that many of us have done things that we've claimed gave us an, an idea of God's will, but they weren't really from Scripture itself. So Grudem lists a few of those things. Conscience. Oh, my conscience tells me this. And the reason that we should be careful with that is because Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 7, 9, 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So our conscience, our inner kind of feeling of what is God's will or not is not reliable 100%. If we're in God's word all the time, our conscience will begin to align more and more with God's word. But if God's word is the standard, not our conscience. God's word is not interpreted by us through what we think it should say, but rather what we think should be determined based on what God's word says. The next uh, thing that Grudem mentioned there was advice from others. Wow, this can be a tricky one. 
Uh, I've heard a lot of this over my years in the church, uh, where sometimes I even took advice from others. I thought, well, they're a spiritual father to me, or they're a leader in my church, or they're a mentor in some way, and so their advice then takes on the characteristic as though this is actually something coming from God himself, and we must be careful with that. Now, we should listen to advice from others. We should consider uh, opinions and thoughts of others as we're making our way through the life together, the life of Christ. But again, we need to subject all of that to God's word. We need to always know his word well enough that when someone gives us advice, we will know right off the bat, if I know God's word really, really well, and you give me advice that does not come in line with God's word, I'm going to immediately know that in my heart and sense that. But if I'm a new Christian or I'm a Christian who's been a Christian for a long time, sometimes there's Christians that have one year of growth 40 years in a row and they really don't have the depth of knowledge of the scriptures, then they might hear advice from someone, maybe even their pastor, maybe even um, another spiritual uh, mentor of theirs, and it could be wrong and they don't even know it's wrong because they just don't know God's word well enough. And again, this is why we need Scripture. We have this necessity in our lives to know Scripture well. So those two things grew to mention conscience. We've got to be careful not relying on our conscience if it, unless it's in line with God's Word, advice from others, unless it's in line with God's Word. An internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Now, this one, I, maybe people would push back a little more on and say, well, if the Holy Spirit is giving you an eternal, inter, internal witness, sorry, um, then it must be from God, it must be real. The danger of relying on an internal witness of the Holy Spirit, however, again, gets back to our personal knowledge and grasp of Scripture. Because if we are not in Scripture, if we don't know it inside out, we could actually have an inner thought that we attribute to the Holy Spirit that was actually just our own thought. Or it could be a thought of some non-biblical idea that we heard somewhere else. And we have thought about it, and somehow it comes back in our subconscious, whatever you want to call that, and so we have to be very careful with that. Um, people often will say, well, I believe the Holy Spirit is saying this to me, or I believe the Holy Spirit is telling me to say this to you. And again, there's, there's a danger in that because very often we got to get back to that, what I read just a moment ago, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? If that's true, and it is because it's scripture, then if the heart is deceitful above all things, we have to be well aware that our flesh often wants what our flesh wants, and we can attribute to the Holy Spirit things that he has not said. So, so conscience, advice from others, internal witness of the Holy Spirit, changed circumstances. We might say, well, things are going really well. The Lord must be in it. Uh, or... I think that the Lord closed this door on me because I got fired and blah, blah, blah. Well, if you got fired for 
not doing your job very well, you don't want to blame God for that and say, well, he changed my circumstances and this must be his will. I've had pastors tell me it's not happened to me, thankfully, but I have, I've had at least two other pastors I know that they've had someone in their career that came and said, you know, um, I've been so unhappy with my wife all this time, but I found I've, God is showing me that this, uh, that I'm to marry this other lady and I'll be happy. Well, we know that cannot be true because scripture tells us that that is not, uh, God's will. God's will is not to have divorce happening. So, uh, so that again, we can convince ourselves sometimes that God is telling us to do something. And that's where, uh, Grudem talks about sanctified reasoning or what we might consider common sense. Before we finish our time together, I want to look at uh, several passages of Scripture that reinforce the things we've been saying um, and remind us uh, some of what we've been hearing. So first of all, from Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, this is um, a passage that tells us a little bit about uh, general revelation. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law... By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So here's a passage that shows, hey, uh, even if someone doesn't have the written Bible, or they haven't had it preached to them, God's law is still written on their hearts. That's the general revelation. There's a sense that we have of good and bad, or right and wrong, and uh, that's in our nature. That doesn't mean that people don't suppress that over time and become very hardened and where they don't know that, but it, we, we kind of come built in with an idea of the law of God. Hebrews 5.14, uh, we get back to this idea of the, the scriptures being nourishment to us. It says, but solid food is for the mature. And those, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Again, constant practice. What does that mean? We need to constantly be fighting sin. That's part of what we need to practice. But how do we distinguish good from evil is we continue to immerse ourselves in God's word so that we can grow and know more about what he teaches. Psalm 119, verse 1. That's our longest psalm. Uh, It talks a lot about the Word of God in that psalm. The whole psalm actually uh, has a a lot of great concepts in there about why Scripture is so important. But verse 1, I'll just stick with that. It says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalm 1, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So there is a an, the idea that it's a blessing to us when we take time to meditate, that is to think deeply on God's word. 1 John 5.2 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. 
And how do we know his commandments if we don't know scripture? You see, the philosopher might say the fact that we don't know everything requires us to be uncertain about everything we do claim to know. Um, But Grudem answers that and says, if we are to talk about degrees of certainty of knowledge we have, then the knowledge we attain from Scripture would have the highest degree of certainty. If the word certain can be applied to any kind of human knowledge, it can be applied to this knowledge. So we can have certainty um, in what we know. As we near the end of our time together, I want to pose some questions. And these again are from Grudem's uh, chapter on this topic. Uh, At the very end, I really appreciate that he always includes uh, questions. These are things that uh, sometimes require some self-examination to uh, think about. So here's some questions at the end of his chapter that he included, and I'll just ask them of you and me to think about. First, when you are witnessing to an unbeliever, what is the one thing above all others that you should want him or her to read? Do you know of anyone who has ever become a Christian without either reading the Bible or hearing someone tell him or her what the Bible said? What then is the primary task of an evangelistic missionary? How should the necessity of Scripture affect our missionary orientation? Do you nourish your soul on the spiritual food of the Word as carefully and diligently as you nourish your body on physical food? What makes us so spiritually insensitive that we feel physical hunger much more acutely than spiritual hunger? What is the remedy? When we are actively seeking to know God's will, where should we spend most of our time and effort? In practice, where do you spend most of your time and effort when seeking to find God's will? Do God's principles in Scripture and the apparent guidance we receive from feelings, conscience, advice, circumstances, human reasoning, or society ever seem to conflict? How should we seek to resolve that conflict? Is it a hopeless task to work for civil legislation based on standards that accord with God's moral principles in Scripture? Why is there good reason to hope that we will finally be able to persuade a great majority of our society to adopt laws consistent with scriptural norms. What would hinder this effort? There are some good questions for us to consider as we uh, close out our time together. I encourage you to think of these things as you go. Um, Consider how you would answer those questions. And I want to thank you for listening today. If you found this to be helpful or encouraging, would you please share it with someone who may enjoy joining us? And do you have a topic that you think would make a good Truth Trek episode? Email me at truthtrekking at gmail.com. Also, please like and follow our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. If you see us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, uh, now known as X. Uh, Please follow us on there as well, and you'll get uh, updates on new podcasts as they come out. Thank you, and I will see you next time on Truth Trek.